Hello, I'm Nastasia, and this is Safeguarding Matters, a podcast by the Safeguarding Resource and Support Hub. Safeguarding Matters is a podcast series where we discuss matters relating to safeguarding in the aid sector, looking particularly at sexual exploitation, abuse and sexual harassment, or SEAH. We have conversations with thought leaders and practitioners who offer insights that can help us all to better understand safeguarding and improve our practices. On today's episode, we'll be looking at how we can transform organisational cultures through feminist leadership. Now, if you've been following The Hub, you'll know that we've been talking a lot about culture and leadership and how those relate to safeguarding. We held a webinar called Abusing Power, which reflected on power and privilege and how those are exercised within an organisation to impact either positively or negatively on organisational culture and, in turn, our ability to do the deep work that is needed for safeguarding. On that webinar, our panellists argued that safeguarding abuses are most likely to occur when there is a power imbalance. The only way organisations can move from compliance to deeper and more meaningful shifts in organisational culture is to challenge all forms of power. Feminist leadership has been praised as one way of exercising power that can impact positively on culture to create safer environments for staff and the wider community. To find out more about this approach, we've invited two guests who can not only explain the theory behind feminist leadership, but who also have the hands-on experience of implementing feminist leadership to really help us understand what it is, how it works, and what good practice might look like. First is Leila Billing, a gender and development consultant who has worked with organisations including Oxfam and UNICEF. Leila has held leadership positions within Girls Not Brides, War Child UK and ActionAid, and specialises in addressing violence against women and girls, as well as feminist leadership and feminist approaches to capacity development. Hi Leila, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're really excited to have you on this podcast. Great, it's lovely to be here. Thanks, Nastasia. So first of all, Leila, can you tell us what feminist leadership is? Okay, well, to me, I'd say feminist leadership is, is a project of transformation. And I think that's what makes it such an exciting and an inspiring approach to leadership. Um, and when I talk about transformation, I'm, I mean it's about transforming some of those unequal power relations that are embedded in our organisations and our institutions and beyond. And it's really about shifting those power dynamics that seem to exclude the majority and privilege the minority. I think another thing to say as well about feminist leadership is that it, it involves leading with what I would call feminist values and principles. So these would include things like accountability, transparency, um, things like the intention to share power. And it's it's really difficult to it's really different, excuse me, to traditional forms of leadership in that um, it takes the ultimate need for transformation as its starting point. Um, and, it, you know, in my experience, a lot of the leadership I've seen across the international development space isn't necessarily particularly welcoming of transformation I mean how many times have you been asked by your boss or by your leader you know how can we make tiny tweaks to improve this project or what what are some of the quick fixes we can put in place here and sometimes I've felt like traditional leadership is is about changing as little as possible through the process just to add kind of a sympathetic caveat here which is that 
I, I acknowledge how difficult it is to lead in the spirit of transformation because we're all embedded in systems that work against us doing so. Um, and then I guess the last thing to say about feminist leadership that I think is really important is that it doesn't rely on you having positional power. So it, it acknowledges that change can come from a variety of levels and a variety of entry points, especially when we act collectively with other people. So, you you know, it's this idea that you don't need to be a CEO, you don't need to be on a senior leadership team to practice feminist leadership, which I think can be really liberating. Thanks. That's a um, that's a really helpful description. Now, as you know, the Resource and Support Hub focuses on supporting organisations to improve their practice, specifically around safeguarding. So I wonder whether you could add to that and explain the relationship between feminist leadership and safeguarding and um, the impact that feminist leadership and, you know, some of the principles you mentioned, such as accountability and transparency um, and and sharing power and what kind of impact that might have on um, an organisation's ability to create safeguarding cultures. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two things to really draw out here. And I would I would say those are power and accountability. Um, And I suppose if there's one thing strong feminist leaders have in common, it's this it's this kind of really analytical or forensic understanding of how power operates in their context and in their organisations. Now, we all know, and lots of the people listening to this podcast will, will know better than me, that vulnerability to abuse is created in relationships of unequal power, right? Um, and I think what feminist leadership does is that it recognises not just those kind of interpersonal power imbalances, but it also pushes us to acknowledge that the kind of the wider systems of oppression such as racism, such as ableism, such as classism, in which these power imbalances lie. Um, And I think, you know, understanding how these interlocking systems of oppression have contributed to various safeguarding crises can really help us as safeguarding practitioners to develop strategies that are actually going to work. Um, So I'd say... You know, feminist leadership is really an approach that says we need to do more than just manage individual cases cases of abuse. We've got to kind of widen our lens and tackle some of these wider systems in which abuse can really take root and thrive. Um, and in that way, it, it it kind of rejects this idea that abuse in our sector is just just the, the result of having a few bad apples in the system. Um so I'd say that's one thing. I'd, I'd say also on, on the subject of power, I think a key area of work for feminist leaders is about surfacing where hidden power lies in an organisation. And, you know, when I speak about hidden power, what I'm really talking about is, you know, the, the processes by which powerful actors can kind of maintain their dominance over subordinate groups through tactics like silencing, through things like exclusion or delegitimizing their voices. And I'll I'll give you an example here. Um, You know, I have a very close friend who works in safeguarding 
um, the safeguarding team and the safe, safeguarding work of her organisation are regularly praised, you know, not only externally by other agencies, by senior management inside the organisation. You know, they've got a really comprehensive uh, set of safeguarding protocols. They they do these, you know, lengthy trainings for staff. Um, but it's also an organisation where members of the SMT, the senior management team, are also known to bully other staff members, right? And they've created this environment where staff members have very little psychological safety in which to speak out. So, so hidden power in that operate in that in that organisation, it's it's kind of operating in ways that are really damaging the organisation's ability to champion safeguarding. Um, and I think what feminist leadership does that's different is that they focus their efforts on kind of surfacing these dynamics, these these sites of hidden power. And they try to focus on making the way power is exercised much more democratic, much more transparent, much more accountable and kind of creating cultures where no conversation is too difficult to have. The final thing I, I would say about power before I move on to accountability is I think feminist leadership recognises that the ways in which we produce knowledge about safeguarding, um, it might be reinforcing power inequalities. And just to kind of give you a sense of what I mean is, I think while there are exceptions, often our sector veers towards using frameworks or toolkits or checklists or protocols that are that are often developed without really good input from affected communities or from local partners or from survivors themselves. So, you know, there's, there rarely seems to be time to do adequate contextualization of some of these frameworks and tools. And I think, you know, taking a step back, when you, when you look at how this plays out, what, what this really expresses is, is kind of a lack of valuing of local experiences or local knowledge or expertise. And I think what, what feminist leadership demands of us is that it's, it, it says to us, look, we, we must start to trust what local actors know about these issues and our safeguarding frameworks and all, all the knowledge we produce about safeguarding must start with them. And then I think the final point to make really about feminist leadership and, and, and how a feminist leadership approach can really support this kind of a culture of safeguarding is, is in relation to accountability. And I think, you know, what feminist leadership does is that it encourages us to really deeply reflect upon some of the ways our own behaviour might be contributing to power imbalances. You know, it, it encourages us to ask ourselves how we might be producing some of the very systems that we think we're trying to transform. And just to give you an example of what that looks like in practice, I think, you know, this happens or this plays out when, for example, white people fail to centre the needs of or fail to share power with women of colour. I think it happens when we allow for the creation of systems or tools that are developed without the input of survivors or our local partner organisations. Um, and it, I think it, also, it can also happen when we frame safeguarding risks in terms of the risks posed to our own individual organisations and their reputations, rather than centering um, our analysis of risks in terms of, you know, the effects 
it can have on the communities we work with. Um, and I think what feminist leadership does, it tells us that accountability is really proactive. It's something that we shouldn't be doing reactively. Um, we've got to practice it daily. We've got to embed it into our work in a really intentional way. Um, and I'd say, you know, on a personal level, it, it requires it requires you to be really brave because you, you have to keep asking yourself, you know, how am I perpetuating what I'm trying to end? How might I be contributing to these these wider systems of inequality? And I think that's a really different way to the way accountability is often framed in a lot of safeguarding practice. Mm, you've raised uh, some really interesting points, um, in particular around the importance of understanding um, how power operates within an organisation and how that needs to be addressed at the systems level, uh, as well as looking at accountability in a way that is intentional and allows us to reflect on ourselves as well as hear from others. Uh, so, but what this does also raise is some potential challenges. Um, you know, all of this sounds like quite complex work. And as you said, some organisations, particularly in this sector, are looking for quick fixes. So following on from that, uh, there are a few organisations who might argue that the nature of the work that they do makes it really hard for them to adopt these principles and to work in this way. But rather, the nature of their work demands that they adopt a much more command and control style leadership. And therefore, feminist leadership, it's just simply not for them. Uh, what would be your response to this argument? I'd, I'd, I'd really sympathise with them you know like you know like I said earlier it's we we're kind of embedded in a system that makes it really difficult to act for leaders to act in in this spirit of 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 transformation um but I would I would also encourage those organizations to kind of think differently you know perhaps we need to have a cold hard look at in the mirror what's going wrong with the types of leadership models that are dominating our sector you know and while while the sector isn't homogenous i think we there's been kind of recent public examples have shown us just how you know racist sexist very abusive environments have been allowed to thrive in development institutions and then if we if we reflect on some of the leadership responses to the safeguarding scandals that have rocked our sector, then I think many of us would say there's things that could have been approached very differently by some of the leaders involved. So I'd I'd kind of I'd kind of challenge those organisations to kind of reflect and kind of say, well, really, if we want to get to where we're going, is more of the same really going to get us there? Right. Um, or do we or do we need to be brave and do we need to be a bit more visionary and think through what what is that type of leadership approach that's going to help us see through some of the kind of critical challenges the sector's facing at the moment? You know, and I'm thinking here about COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter. And I've and I've thought a lot about how those two um occurrences have exposed a lot of the fault lines in our society and in our organisation. So I'd say to those organisations that are struggling, you know, there's a real window of opportunity for us to rethink our current approaches to leadership. Um, and and now perhaps is the time to do it. There's never been a better time to do it, really. <laughs> you, you make a strong case, Leila. And do you think that all organisations could or should adopt feminist leadership? 
I think there's a real danger with feminist leadership that if it's not done um, with a really critical understanding of power, if it's not done with a commitment to a kind of a feminist project, that there's a real danger that if organisations do quote-unquote adopt it, um, as an approach it will become co-opted um, it may become codified in our organisations in ways that kind of strip it from what it originally set out to do, from its original set, its its original meaning or its original purpose. So, no, I don't think I don't think all organisations are equipped to do it. Would I love every organisation to to do it in the way that I think it should be done? Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think also, you know, it. Feminist leadership is having a bit of a moment. You know, there's quite a lot of interest in it. And, what you know, while I think that's great, um, I think it's really important that that that, fem- that the feminists among us are, are really vigilant that it doesn't become co-opted or depoliticised or turn into something kind of unrecognisable. And finally, um, if we take one of our listeners who, um, let's say, is a member of a small organisation... Uh, working in the aid sector, um, who hears this podcast and might be interested in feminist leadership and the principles, uh, the, the fundamental values and principles that you mentioned really speaks to them. Uh, how would you suggest that they start on their journey? So I'd say a really good place to start is to start with some of the the women um, from the global south who have written so beautifully and so insightfully about feminist leadership and who have done so much analysis of 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 what it is what 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 frames it what's its purpose and i would i would encourage those people to seek out the works of um Shrilata Batlevala who's written amazingly on on this subject and i think you know, as part of that process of kind of self-education is also, you know, I'd encourage them to go through a bit of a process of self-reflection and perhaps to have some discussions in small groups in their organisations, you know, to critically ask themselves, you know, how do we feel about our current approaches to leadership in this organisation? You know, what would what would a feminist leadership approach offer us? Um, What might be difficult about kind of shifting some of our thinking and some of our leadership approaches um and i think that kind of that that self-reflection and then that kind of collective reflection processes can really can really kind of kick you off in a good way yes exactly and and it will enable organizations to answer that question about you know whether feminist leadership is for them yeah absolutely because because it's not it's not going to be it's not going to be for everyone well, thanks so much for joining us, Leila. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I feel like I've learned a lot. Thanks so much, Nastasia. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Our next guest is Lillian Bukongo. Lillian is a leadership coach and organisation transformation specialist. Lillian's really passionate about developing leaders and enjoys helping people to maximise their potential. She's also a publisher of a book called Heart of Surrender, a fictional story about a woman's journey as she makes sense of the world. 
She's currently leading the implementation of feminist leadership across ActionAid International, an organisation that works with women and girls to end violence and fight poverty. So we really wanted to hear from her about, you know, one organisation's real journey with implementing feminist leadership. So Lillian, thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. So uh, you're working with ActionAid, who as an organisation have been really quite explicit about their commitment to feminist leadership. Now, we just heard from Leila what feminist leadership means to her. Could you tell us a bit what feminist leadership means to ActionAid and why the organisation decided to adopt this approach? Thank you, Natasha, for that. Um, So when you think about uh, leadership in its entirety, it's about exercising of power. And when you think about exercising of power, it's decisions that are made to influence certain groupings or individuals or to make certain decisions. And a lot of those decisions, negative or positive, end up influencing people's lives and affecting um, people in general and creating an impact in society, creating inequalities in, in, in certain situations. And so if you think about leadership in that sense and the kind of work that we are involved in, then it means we focus on a form of leadership that then tries to turn that tide, whereby it focuses on us uh, looking at power positively and how we use it positively and inclusively in terms of effecting the change that we're looking uh, looking to have in society. Action Aid is involved in... um, bringing about social uh, social justice and gender equality and, 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 of course, seeking to end poverty. Those are not small change issues to focus on. It requires an understanding that they all are derived from wrong decisions that were made or unfair decisions that were made that led to inequalities in society that we need to, um, we need to shift. And therefore, uh, when, you, when you think about the exercise of power, you have to ask yourself, so how do we make that change? So it's focusing on positive use of that power and including or being inclusive by including groups that were perhaps formerly marginalized, which then tries to to change the tide. So our focus is really to try and see how do we positively influence society and bring about those groups that are marginalized to be able to bring about the change that we are um, seeking to bring in society. And so you are really sort of leading the implementation of this and of feminist leadership across the whole organisation. So could you tell us in really practical terms the journey that you had to go on with ActionAid? So feminist leadership was not, um, it just didn't, didn't happen. It wasn't just something that popped out of somewhere. In around 2004, um, was focusing on some of the challenges that women were facing at that particular time. And, you know, when the group came together to try and solution, one of the solutions that was recommended is, why don't we, you know, implement feminist leadership? But at that particular time, we're looking at some of the challenges that women are facing in society and trying to see how best do we solve them. And therefore, through different approaches and, and of course, with support from leadership, top leadership, which is very critical, um, different conversations were had over time. It wasn't an easy conversation, but different conversations were had over time 
to try and see how do we deal with some of those challenges that women were facing in the organization, right? So there were um, spaces that were created to try and first identify what those issues were and then identify what is the best approach to dealing with those issues. But then finally, there was a need to see, okay, whereas the women rights are the ones that pushed for this, feminist leadership has to be housed somewhere for it to make sense. And therefore, within it was decided that it would sit within the human resources and, and organizational development unit, which would push it across the, the, you know, the federation. So over time, through different trainings, having identified an expert um, in, 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 in that particular topic, who is Sri Lata, um, she was brought in to you know, train people on feminist leadership. But then again, there was a challenge of the fact that ActionAid is a huge organization made up of different cultures, subcultures in different areas across the planet, right? So there was a need to balance this. You couldn't go hardcore, but also you couldn't go light on, on, on feminist leadership. And therefore, Angela, who's one of our directors currently in the, in, the, in the Federation, was charged with the leadership of trying to see how do we come, how do we reach a common ground whereby people who are not very core feminists and those who are core feminists actually find middle ground in being able to embrace feminist leadership. And um, from there and looking at um, you know, finance and how finance has principles, we needed to come up with what we would call guiding stars in that particular journey of attaining the feminist behaviors that we're looking at. And that's how um, the feminist principles came about, whereby we had to identify what sort of behaviors do, do we want to see in our people that when cumulatively you look at how we conduct ourselves or how we um, conduct our business or how we work and implement our programs and build relationships with community and partners, that you can actually see feminist leadership in play. So Lillian, you've mentioned uh, Action Aid's 10 Principles of Feminist Leadership. Uh, these have already been published on Action Aid's website and include principles such as self-awareness, sharing power and courage, some of the things that we've been speaking about on this podcast. So we'll share a direct link to the full list in the podcast description for listeners to take a proper look at those. Um, and I'll ask you perhaps about some of the biggest challenges that you had in implementing those principles? Besides um, feminist, uh, feminism as, as a term being um, something that was resisted, that was, and both male and female, there was resistance around, you know, being pushed towards feminism. You, you realize that there are a lot of assumptions that are made when it comes to um, some of the challenges that women actually face uh, within organization. We are not conscious of the, the patriarchal structures and the forms of dominance that really exist and how those end up impacting how we work. We don't realize that it's not just um, female-male sort of dynamics that come up. It's, it's that dynamics when it comes to, to you know, same genders, especially female and female. So at the, at the beginning, I remember when I, I, was, I was doing a bit of research and background just to learn 
how that journey was because I came in later in the organization. There was a lot of tears. There was a lot of, um, because you're trying to change people's behavior and that's feminist leadership for us, trying to change people's behavior from how we've done business as usual to trying to say there is a better way of us being able to achieve the change that we are looking for, being able to bring impact in society. It's recognizing that if we are to bring about sustainable change, we've got to move from looking at the institution to focusing on empowering on individuals and those individuals collectively believing in a cause, pushing for that particular change. And, and at some point, that is how Action Age, uh, Action Aid changed its strategy, right? So it's, it's quite interesting what you get to find, both at an individual level in terms of some of those hidden beliefs. Um, we talk about hidden power, but there's also the invisible power. So some of those hidden beliefs that have entrenched themselves in the organization and and dealing with those is not easy because they are layered they're layered within our structures they're layered within our our attitudes our behaviors and that is why when you think about feminist leadership for us it's important that we focus on shifting individual behaviors because we are socialized all differently we are coming from different social backgrounds, the certain beliefs and norms that we have. And therefore, if we focus on that, the likelihood of us achieving the change that we're looking for is higher than looking at just institution. But naturally, it's easy to say it's the institution. Great. And so um, you mentioned that um, ActionAid started this journey, or at least it was sort of initiated um, in sort of 2004. And obviously, this is an ongoing process. Um, are you able to share sort of some of the main changes that you've already been able to see in the organization as a result of um, its commitment to feminist leadership? Wow, that's a very good question. I think one of the things that I can proudly say about our organization is there is sort of um, expectations of how we should behave or how we should conduct ourselves. And that's the beauty of having an approach that is supported from the top leadership so that ultimately it's not just one person's responsibility to push for that particular um, narrative to become the new normal in the organization, but it becomes everyone's business. So you will hear when it comes to how we do things and how we run our programs and how we run our meetings. If someone does something because now we are at the stage where everyone is aware of the principles, everyone is aware of feminist leadership as an approach to how we do things in action aid. It becomes very easy for someone to say, mm -mm -mm, but that is not how we do things. That's not how we are a feminist conscious organization. That is not how we do things. That is not how we should behave. And therefore, when it comes to um, shifting behavior when it comes to correcting behavior when it comes to making decisions you sort of have a place to start from that is an equal footing and is accepted by everyone different from if it was something that was not accepted by everyone so if we are talking about anything happening in the organization the feminist principles or feminist leadership as a whole is the starting point the, sort of the, the, the place where we rise and fall. We rise from it when we make the decisions. We fall on it when we have gaps and we're saying, okay, fine. We might not have gotten this place right. We might not have gone, you know, the direction that we needed to go, but then we can use 
feminist leadership as what brings us together to rise from that situation. So for me, that is very important that as an organization, regardless of where you go right now in all our 45 countries, feminist leadership is common language. Um, it's, it's known to everyone. The principles are known to everyone. The journey that we are on, the next level of the journey is now figuring out how then do we implement them practically within our work? How do we make them, how do we internalize them? How do we embed them in our work? So in the journey of implementation, different countries are in different places and spaces simply because of other factors uh, to do with um, whether it's culture or just simply the political and cultural environment that a country might find itself in. But ultimately, the knowledge of the principles is something that we all have and we are all aware of it. And it becomes easier to, to, to identify negative behavior when it is not in alignment with who we are or with the principles. Thanks. Um... So you've mentioned um, a sort of number of positives, and I think the one that sort of stands out to me is really sort of that individuals are empowered to sort of say, I'm not okay with this, and to really be able to identify negative behaviours. Um, so it just makes me think about the kind of relationship between feminist leadership and safeguarding. So I wonder whether you could tell us a bit more about whether feminist leadership, in your view, has, has strengthened ActionAid's approach to safeguarding. Um, and if so, um, in what ways? Thank you, thank you. Very, very critical question there. Um, when I think about our um, safeguarding team and, and sort of the effort that has gone in and, and you know the work that they've done and where we are even in terms of having been recognized um, to have effectively implemented our policies, Feminist leadership is at the center of our safeguarding approach, whether it's in terms of training um, the whole um, federation on the different policies, whether it's in terms of training the investigators when it comes to any, um, uh, you know, any incidences that have been reported. Um, our investigators are trained on how to approach issues from a feminist lens, so to speak. So it's front and center of safeguarding in the sense that one of the things we push for is sort of a preventive approach, whereas it's very easy to look at um, the aftermath of issues in terms of trying to identify the incidences and working on getting the incidences. Combining safeguarding training with a feminist leadership training or you know, making sure that those are sort of blended together, it allows you to take a preventive approach to issues. So that, like I mentioned earlier, there's a focus on certain behaviors that are expected. There's a sort of language of accountability that we have. So that when, when a leader behaves in a certain way or when a team member behaves in a certain way, it's very easy for you to call them out, but not calling them out from a personal point of view. It's very principally led because it's based on the principles, right? You, it's very easy for you to say, but that's not who we are. That's not, that's not how we should conduct ourselves. So for, for us, it's been very important to blend safeguarding with feminist leadership 
in their training, in their conversations, um, in their analysis where situations, where incidences have been found, so that you're not treating an issue purely from um, just a sort of face value of it, but you're guided by the principles. If you're talking about um, the, the, the investigators being self-aware, one of our principles, them recognizing some of the biases that they might be having when they go in um, handling incidences, dismantling bias is one of our other principles. So it becomes critical that they understand the behaviors, expected behaviors, even in conducting safeguarding. So they mutually reinforce each other, if you may. And that, I think, perhaps has been the greatest contributor in getting us um, to where we are as an organization that is very conscious around safeguarding issues. And just my last question, um, you've mentioned in, in your responses that obviously ActionAid is a really large federation and I think you mentioned it has around 45 country officers and it works in a range of you know, really complex development issues and I just wonder what about smaller organisations? Can smaller organisations also transform their leadership approach or does it require a lot of resources? Surprisingly, I would argue that change or implementing feminist leadership approach in a small organization um, is more likely to be successful than a huge organization like ActionAid. The, the, the heavy lifting within such a broad, big, diverse organization is a bit heavier simply because when you look at, at implementation of feminist leadership and especially our principles, you're looking to shift behavior. Shifting behavior um, is not something that is that happens overnight. More than ever right now in the environment that we are in, we need to shift in terms of how we lead. And feminist leadership for me is the form of leadership that organizations need to embrace because of its consciousness around some of those dynamics, around how layered our issues are, you know, and to solve some of those issues required a different understanding and a different way of leading. So I think for small organization, very much so, they're able to implement feminist leadership. Great, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Lillian. I think that's a perfect uh, place to end. Um, it was really lovely to hear from you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Leila and Lillian on what feminist leadership means for them, how it can be implemented across an organization and the benefits it can bring, particularly in creating safer environments for your staff and the communities you engage with. If you'd like to find out more about feminist leadership, we've got lots of resources on our website at safeguardingsupporthub.org. We'll include a few of the top resources in the description of this podcast, including those that were referenced throughout. If you've got any comments, questions or requests about this episode, why not tweet us at safeguardingrsh. Our next episode is called Can We Trust the Aid Sector to Keep People Safe? where we'll be interviewing Hannah Clare, the head of PSEA and safeguarding at Norwegian Refugee Council, and Dr. Faith Mwangi-Powell, the CEO of Girls Not Brides. Together, we explore the specific challenges the aid sector faces in keeping people safe. If you don't want to miss it, subscribe to Safeguarding Matters or sign up to our monthly newsletter for the latest. Thanks so much for listening and see you on our next podcast.